when I, you weren't going to have me finish. You just had me drop out and go into ministry full time as, as a 19-year-old kid. Why, why, why did you lead me to go to Oregon State to begin with? There's always a purpose. There's always a plan. Trust God with his plan. My so that's a little bit about me. I've been uh, pastoring since 2004. Uh, a lot of years in ministry were youth ministry, 12 years as a youth pastor. Uh, then another couple years as an associate pastor, working under my dad at his church, Band Christian Fellowship. And then in 2017, became the lead pastor of Riverview Christian Fellowship up in Coos Bay. And uh, God has just uh, been working and moving and doing amazing things in that church as well. And it's called Riverview there in Coos Bay. So um, that's a little bit about me. I'm married. I married my high school sweetheart. We met youth group. And uh, we, we have four children. These are our two oldest children, Elijah and Caleb. We also have a daughter whose name is Maya, she's 13, and a son named Titus, who's uh, 11. And um, so those are our kids, our family. And uh, But that's a little bit about me, just so you have some context. Um, let's jump into the message, though. I, I wanted to talk about, as Rory was just, we were discussing in the months leading up to this, the topic of spiritual warfare. And just the fact that we are in a battle, guys, are you aware of that? This is life in a battle. It's a struggle. You know, it's a wrestling constantly. And that battle isn't going to be gone and over until we get to heaven. While we're in this life, there's always going to be a fight. There's always going to be a battle. I believe that. And so we've got to be prepared. We've got to be mindful of that battle. Be aware of, like Roy talked about last night, the spiritual forces of evil and darkness that are at work trying to drag us down, trying to uh, rob us of the power of God, the spirit of God. We have to be aware of that battle. But I want to talk about my two teachings that I get to do this morning and this evening. Talk about some of the different uh, ways that the enemy attacks, some of the ways that spiritual attack comes. And throughout my journey with the Lord, uh, I've found that oftentimes the attacks come at the uh, strangest times, the most unexpected times when attacks come. And I've found that often attack, spiritual attack presents itself and comes against us immediately following a spiritual victory. Has anybody else noticed that in your life? That right after some big victory you've gone through, that all of a sudden this attack comes and a lot of times we're not ready for it. Why? Because, man, I'm walking in victory. God just gave me power over this thing. Man, I just broke that addiction. And I'm on cloud nine, and I'm feeling good, and I'm invincible. Man, nothing can touch me. God's power is working through me. And the next thing you know, bam, you get attacked with some temptation. What I want to talk about this morning, one of the two things that I think can really happen after a victory is either... We think too much that of ourselves. That is, we were filled with pride in a sense. We think we're invincible. We feel like, I, I'm untouchable. Man, the enemy's got nothing on me. And so what that can lead to is in our pride, we can let our guard down. And we can let our guard down. The enemy can then tempt us. He can attack us. And we're not ready. We're not prepared. It's like, the battle's over. We put our shield down. We put our sword down. We're starting to celebrate the victory that God has given us, perhaps. Maybe that victory, like I said, came through some bondage being broken. Maybe that victory came through 
uh, getting to lead a co-worker to Christ or seeing a family member that's been prodigal running from God. They've come back and you're celebrating this victory. And the enemy comes oftentimes on the heels of a victory. And he'll attack in this way, in the way of pride. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but coming off the week of prayer and fasting, prayer and fasting, there's a lot of victories. In our church, in our gatherings, we had, like, probably much like you guys, and we had three services a day, 6 a.m., noon, 6 p.m., for six days, seven days, whatever we did, you know? The whole week, it was 20 services in the church that week. It's wild. People were having chains broken in their lives, long-time addictions being confessed, uh, testimonies of people. I remember one young man that came up, young man, he's my age. I don't know if I can say that anymore. Do I have too much gray in my beard at this point to say a young man like me? No, I'm good. All right. It's all relative anyway. But this young guy, this young man in our church, he got up and shared a testimony of being free from a porn addiction for over a year now. And he testified of the intimacy with his wife that he's had. It was an over two-decade porn addiction that he had since junior high. And he had just been, man, struggling and failing and falling and trying to fight this battle all by himself. And he testified how a year now he's been clean, so to speak. He has not stumbled in that way. And the way that he achieved that victory was by bringing it to the light. But by bringing it to the light, sharing it with brothers. And guys, we need each other. If you don't know that yet, we need one another. We need brothers we can lean on. I think of, you know, Moses. Remember when they came out of Egypt and the children of Israel were fighting against the enemy, the Amalekites, and Joshua was down fighting the battle. And Moses, remember, was up on the mountain overlooking the battlefield. And he had his hands raised. And he was praying to God for the victory down in the battle below. And his arms, it says, began to grow weary and they began to fall down. And when they fell down, the children of Israel were starting to lose the battle. And so what happened? What happened for Moses when his arms were failing? Two men came to his aid. Aaron and who? Her. Aaron and her, these two dudes, came to Moses' aid, and they lifted up his arms and held him up when he was too weak. And guys, each one of us, I believe, need an Aaron and a Her in our life. Amen. Do, you, do you recognize who your Aaron and your Her are? If you don't have an Aaron and a Her, pray. Say, Lord, send me a couple guys that I can lean on. That when my hands are weary, when I'm just, I'm tired because the battle's been waging, and I'm just... My, I can see my hands are slipping and, and the enemy's starting to give, gain victory here, gain ground. Do you have guys you can call and say, brothers, I need prayer. You can shoot them a text. You can shoot them a call and say, hey, I'm going through something. Or the enemy's attacking, man. I'm getting tempted. Tempted to do something stupid. Tempted to go back to that thing that I, I, I walked away from and I left years ago. But now, man, the enemy's on my heels here. He's after me. Do you recognize your, your Aaron and your Herb? Uh, on the heels of prayer and fasting, I find that oftentimes attack comes. I know a lot of people in our church, a lot of even our elders and home group leaders and our staff shared that this week. Coming off of the week of prayer and fasting, all this victory, all of this being filled with the spirit and denying our flesh and wow. And then right into Sunday night and Monday, finishing prayer and fasting, some people got hit with some really hard stuff. 
I know some guys, and not all this was external attack. Sometimes the hardest attacks we, have, we face from the enemy are not external, amen? Those internal attacks. Rory talked about it last night. Just how the enemy wages war on us primarily where? In the mind. And the greatest attacks spiritually can come to us in our mind. And one brother in our church just reached out for prayer yesterday and said, man, I need prayer. I'm just feeling defeated. And I'm like, defeated? I mean, you were, this guy was at prayer every morning, every evening, at some of the noon sessions. He probably was at church 15 times last week. More than he's ever been. He's like, feeling defeated. And I'm like, what's going on? How could you feel defeated when you've sought the Lord and been filled with the Spirit? And I want to submit that it's because when we're having victory, when we're making advances, again, this is warfare, think about it. When we are advancing the kingdom of God, we are pushing into enemy's territory. And what do we think he's going to do? What do we think as we start to advance the line and spread the light into places that are dark, not just out there in the world, but in our own lives and hearts, in our homes, in our families, in our churches, we start exposing things to the light that have been in darkness. Strongholds, like we talked about last night. These places where the enemy has been able to inhabit When we start shining the light and exposing those, and the enemy loses that territory. Sometimes he's been holding that territory, like this brother that shared his porn addiction, freedom from that. So sometimes that the, the enemy has had that territory for decades. Perhaps for most of your life. And when we kick him out of that space, he's going to retaliate. He's going to fight back. He's going to come after us with everything he's got. And so we have to be prepared. We have to be ready for the attacks of the enemy when, not just when things are hard. Because when things are hard, our eyes typically go to the Lord, right? Because we're aware of our need for Him. It's when things are good and we've come off a victory, we're like, yeah, I'm doing great. And the enemy sees that's when we're most vulnerable. When? After a victory. After a breakthrough. I think about the children of Israel when they went into the promised land led by Joshua Remember the first battle that they came against? It was a huge victory. The city of Jericho, remember? Those huge fortified walls in this stronghold. Massive stronghold. Perhaps the most fortified city in all of the land. The biggest battle happened first, and they were victorious. God brought the victory, and they're celebrating. But they let their guard down, didn't they? And we know there was sin in the camp. One of the Israelites... A man named Achan took from the spoils of Jericho, which God strictly forbade them from touching. And he ignored that wisdom, that instruction, that command from the Lord and took the spoils anyway. And the next battle they came up against was just this little podunk town called Ai. Oh, no big deal. We don't need to send all the soldiers, they thought. So they just sent part of the army. Oh, just go whip up on those guys. We don't need, we don't need the whole... The, the whole force to come against AI, they're, they're not going to be any problem at all. And that just, that just smells of pride, doesn't it? It just reeks of pride. Oh, we got this. I can handle this. And sometimes what we can do, we get this big breakthrough of stronghold is removed from our lives. And then we start thinking, oh, this other little thing here, this, this attack of the enemy, I got this. I got this. I, can, I mean, after all, look... Look at this victory over here. It's way bigger enemy. 
I can, I can handle this. And we put ourselves in positions. We put ourselves in places where we're going to fall. Because without the Lord, we're nothing. We forget the battle like we sing. The battle belongs to the Lord. It wasn't our might that brought that victory. And no matter how big or small the enemy, without the Lord, we can do nothing. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 15? He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He said, abide in me. For without me, you can do nada. You can do nothing without me. Because we need this humility that recognizes our constant need for the Lord. We don't just need the Lord when we face a big enemy. We need the Lord every single day. Have you found that to be true? I go one day without the Lord trying to muster up men's muster, you know. I, here we are, we're going we're gonna to muster. By the way, I had to look up that word because uh, it's not a word in my vocabulary regularly. Uh, but when I use the word muster, it's, it's, it's usually like trying to muster up, pull together some strength. But that is similar to the, the definition of the word muster. It's, it's technically speaking of, in a military sense, an assembling together. It's like, get the soldiers together. Isn't that a cool thing? I just love that. I don't, Roy, did you come up with that name for this, men's muster? Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, that was me. Brilliant. Men's muster, this idea that we're soldiers. This is warfare. We got a, a formal assembling together of ourselves. Why? Not to come away in retreat. I love that this isn't called the men's retreat. Last week, uh, Pastor Jim Wright from Mountain Church in Medford was visiting our church at Riverview with about 25 young men, and they're called warriors. This is a group of men that he trains and sharpens for battle, the 20, 30-something-year-old men, and he's just intentionally doing trips, extreme outdoor things, and discipling these 25 men, and they were there, and I said, oh, you guys doing like a, a warrior retreat or something? He goes, no. We're doing a warrior attack. He goes, we're not called a retreat. And I was like, ooh, that's good. That's good. I'm going to use that. But uh, guess we're not. We're not called to run away from the enemy. We're called to face him head on and take territory, take territory, move forward towards the enemy. But when we do, the enemy is going to retaliate. He's going to try and find some weakness, and oftentimes that weakness is our pride. I want to flip to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's get the word. You said you were going to get the word of lunch. Where's, where's the Bible verses? 2 Samuel chapter 11. Super famous passage. You guys, I'm sure, all know this front and back. It's the famous passage of King David's great sin. You know what sin I'm talking about. David's great sin with Bathsheba. And the subsequent attempted cover-up of that sin by having her husband Uriah, who was one of David's mighty men, left out to dry on the battlefield, on the front lines, and killed. Heinous, horrible, awful. How could a man of God... The Bible says David was a man after what? A man after God's own heart. And then we read stuff like this in 2 Samuel 11, we're like, What? How was David a man after God's heart if he was sleeping with other men's wives and then having them kill, those men killed, to cover up his sin? How in the world can the Bible say that? And might I submit that it doesn't mean that David 
was always in line with the heart of God. It doesn't mean David was a man after God's heart, meaning everything he did was in accordance with God's heart. But then it means he was a man that was after God's heart. Like he was running after the heart of God. He was always attempting to obtain or, or reach the heart of God. Does that make sense? I'm not a man that always attains to the heart of God and fulfills and acts with the heart of God. But my heart's desire is to do that. And in that sense, I would, I would like to say that God can say, Daniel's a, a man after my heart. He's running after me. Yeah, he falls down. Yeah, he screws up. Yeah, he's an idiot sometimes. You can ask my wife. But he gets up and he keeps running after me. 2 Samuel 11, let's read this chapter together. It says in verse 1, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Alright, so pause right there. We see that David has been conquering. He's had man, victory after victory after victory as the king of Israel. They're at the pinnacle of the, the empire, of the kingdom of Israel at this time. David is just reveling in the victories that God has given him. And here in chapter 11 we read that it's time to go to battle again. It's springtime. You know, you don't, who wants to go to battle in the dead of winter, right? They were smarter than that. No, let's wait until spring. It was like a mutual agreed upon thing, right? We're, we're going to kill you, but not yet, right? Like, let's just wait until the, the snow is gone. Let's wait until the temperature warms up. They won't kill each other, right? And so it's time to go out to battle, but it says all the other kings were going out, and David's men were going out to fight battles, but David for himself stayed at, in Jerusalem. He stayed home. David had reached a point, I believe, in his reign as king that he was ready to take it easy. He was perhaps a 50, 60-year-old man at this time in his reign. A lot of times people think of the, the sin of David with Bathsheba and think, oh, he was a young man, just viral. And, you know, he was just full of vitality, and that's why he stumbled, because he was this young man with all this testosterone. And the older men I've talked to say, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a young man or an old man, that temptation remains. Can I get an amen from the older guys in here? It's not like temptation just disappears. Uh, and, and so David is, don't think of him as a 20, 30-year-old man. He's perhaps 50 or 60 here. But he's ready to kind of slow down a little bit. And some of you older guys are like, I get that, right? You older men, you've been battling. You, you've done a lot of battling. And you're like, hey, it's the young guy's turn. You young guys, get out there and, and fight the battles and take the enemy head on. Us older guys, we paid our dues. We'll pray for you. We'll sit back and watch you and celebrate. Go, good job. Go get them. But let me say, I think that's a dangerous place to be. I'm going to have to retract those amens. <laughs> yeah. Amen, yeah. Like, yeah, that's not a good thing in this story. David stayed at home and it ended up winding up in his demise. Because, see, I believe our modern idea of even retirement is not a biblical, it's not a biblical uh, model that's given to us. 
In fact, I love, this is why I named my second born Caleb. We had to make his life difficult and spell it with a K instead of a C. But uh, Caleb, uh, we named him Caleb because of the Caleb of the Old Testament. Caleb and Joshua, the only two spies that were like, let's go in, take out the giants, right? The other ten spies had a negative report. No, we can't take them on. Caleb and Joshua, full of faith, they got to enter the promised land. And Caleb specifically in the scriptures, remember when he was, what, 80 years old, 85 years old, right? Joshua was like, hey, what, what territory do you want, Caleb? You're an old man. You paid your dues. You can pick, take your pick of the land. And Caleb says, give me the hill country where the giants are. I want to go kill some giants. In Caleb's old age, 85 years old, he could have said, uh, I'll take this nice little valley over here that where you've already wiped out the enemy and I'll just move in and set up camp. You know, that's what, I'll take this the easy route. No, he says, I'm going to climb that mountain where the giants, where the stronghold is. You know, whoever's got the high ground, right? Militarily has the advantage. And Caleb said, not a problem. God's on my side. And I'm a warrior. And I'm going to take ground. I'm not going to slow down. How often do you hear people say this? Hey, see you later. Take it easy. I hate that. I, I loathe that statement. And I actually rebuke people when they tell me to. Because they say, hey, take it easy. I say, no. No, I'm not going to take it easy. Like, what, is, what does that imply? That Hey, just, just take it easy. Just, you know, coast through life. Don't, don't work too hard. Don't like press in too much. Don't get too serious about Jesus. Just take it easy. And I'm like, I reject that. No, I'm not going to take it easy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go hard. And I want to go hard until the day I die. Amen. Uh, personally, you know, people say, you know, what, what time do you think you'll retire? And I'm a young man, like I said earlier. I'm a young, just spring chicken here. I'm almost 40. And I've got a 16-year-old. So I'm, I'm not too... Uh, too young perhaps, but perhaps my thinking on this will change. It's easy to say when you're 30, I'm never going to retire. You know, when you're 60, 65, 70 years old, you're like, you'll think differently once you're our age. <laughs> but I say this now so that you can hold me to it later. Say, so, wait a minute, Daniel, you said you weren't going to retire. And I'm not saying that your, your role may need to adapt or change somewhat. Right? But being called to the ministry, I don't want to say, all right, I'm entering retirement now. I'm not going to minister to people. I'm not going to preach God's word anymore. I did that, paid my dues. Now it's me time. I'm going to finish out my life just taking it easy on a beach somewhere. I don't think that that American model of retirement is biblical at all. And in fact, I think a lot of people miss out on the best years. The best years where God could use them. Think about it. When you're retired, you don't have to work anymore. You have so much time on your hands. Like, you need to see my honey-do list. <laughs> right? I ain't got no time anymore. And, and that's true. Many times when guys retire, they're more busy than they were when they were working a full-time job. However, you have more flexibility. You have the ability to say, you know what? I'm going to come down and help at the church. I'm going to help with that ministry. I'm going to help clean. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help. Help lead a, a men's study. Man, I'm going to facilitate this. I'm, oh, you guys need help building a shop for the church? Count me in. Where do I sign up? Let me help. Not only do you have more time, perhaps, but oftentimes you have more resources. You know, you're not buying diapers and formula and 
you know, put, put braces in kids' mouths and all that stuff that you do when you're younger. You're older now. All those expenses, you have the ability to give more of your time, of your money, of your gifts, and your talents. So I want to challenge us that we wouldn't, like David, say, ah, oh, I'm, I'm 50, I'm 60, it's time for me to just slow down and kick back, put my feet up, watch other people fight the battle. David hung back. He took it easy. And what happens? Verse 2, we all know what happens. When evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. It says, so David, verse 3, sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? But David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, from what David did with her, by the way, she purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, she's pregnant, you know the rest of the story perhaps, David tries to cover up the pregnancy, bring Uriah back from the battle, say, hey, I just, I thought you needed a break, I got a message to send with you to the, the front lines of the battle. So, hey, go home with your wife and, you know, enjoy your wife for a night. Uriah was such a stud, such an honorable man. He said, no, I'm not. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to sleep outside. I'm not going to go. How could I go sleep in a warm bed with my wife and my brothers are out there on the front lines? Can you imagine David's heart when Uriah said that to him? Can you imagine how the, just the betrayal and the utter wickedness of David taking this man's wife while he was out fighting the battles for him in his place. How, when Uriah said, with honor, no, I can't go home and sleep with my wife. How could I do that to my brothers? Oh, David must have just went, oh man. This is a man of God. I've wronged. Oh, the conviction must have been unbearable. But David tries to conceal it, tries to cover it up. He can't, so he has Uriah killed. We know later that Bathsheba gives birth, that son dies, that child dies from that sinful union between David and Bathsheba. We know the story well. It's a battle that most men struggle with, if not all men struggle with, the battle of lust. There's books about it, every man's battle. There's books for young men, every young man's battle. You know, that all of us struggle with this issue of lust and if we're not careful like David, we can be caught off guard. And when we get caught off guard is when we think we're doing pretty good. When we think, I can just take it easy. I don't have to go fight anymore. No, you've got to keep fighting every single day. And you can't allow yourself these opportunities. David gets up in the middle of the night, in the evening, it's dark outside. By the way, late in the evening, when it's dark, when everyone else is in bed, probably not a good time to be wandering around. Right? I've heard people preach on this passage before and say, Oh, Bathsheba, what, what was she doing out there? She was, she was trying to tempt David. I don't believe so. This was a customary thing to bathe up on the, on the rooftop like that. And people try to blame the woman, right? How like us that is, isn't it? In fact, the first man tried to blame the first woman. Remember, for the fall into sin. It was that woman you gave me, Adam said. When God said, what did you do? You ate the forbidden fruit. It was that woman you gave me, God. 
trying to blame the woman. And a lot of times men say, well, if women didn't flaunt themselves, then I wouldn't be tempted to do this or look at them or lust at No, don't blame the woman, guys. We need to own that. Stop making excuses for sin. We need to stop making opportunities for sin. We need to remove those places, those footholds that the enemy can get in us. Don't underestimate your flesh, guys. This is what David did. He thought he could just take it easy, not engage in battle, and then he would be fine. Sometimes you may be tempted to think, you know what, I don't need to go to church. I'm doing good. I'm strong enough now. I've been walking with Jesus long enough that, you know, it's okay if I don't read my Bible every day, if I don't engage in the spiritual battle. I'll, I'll be fine. No, you won't. Don't underestimate your flesh. Don't underestimate the enemy. Satan's been around a lot longer than you and me. That's an understatement, right? He's been around way longer than you and me, and he knows how we work. Really, mankind has not changed since the beginning. He can use the same exact tactics that he used in the garden, and guess what? They still work on us, even now. He knows how we tick. He knows how to get a hold of us. And like Roy talked about last night, if we're not careful... We can make opportunities for our flesh like David does here by not going to battle. And when we make opportunities for the flesh, that can turn into then a foothold for the enemy. It can give the enemy a place where he can stand. Think about a foothold. I'm thinking about like rock climbing. Any rock climbers? We like to like, okay, we've got some rock climbers in here. People, I'm not a rock climber, but I understand that it's important to have something to hang on to (laughs) when you're way up high. You know, and if you don't have a handhold, you don't have a good foothold. For me, I like those handholds. You know, those footholds, the, the big old massive ones that have like the finger grips in them and the big cup on them. You know what I'm saying? You can, I can, I can hang out there all day. But then you get up to the, the tricky part of the rock face. You know, the rock climbing wall. And there's these teeny tiny little stubs around the bolt. Right? Like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? The smaller the handhold, the foothold, the harder it is to hang on. And so it is with the enemy, guys, in our lives. Some of us have made these massive footholds, handholds for Satan and evil influences into our lives. Maybe that's having devices without protection on them. Maybe it's having a, a computer or your phone without having accountability with that stuff. And you guys, you've got you've to be... Wise, you've got to be honest, you've got to be vigilant if you're going to protect yourself against stumbling in that way in lustful things. Why? Because it's not just Bathsheba on a roof randomly, it is accessible anytime, almost anywhere now with mobile devices. We've got to protect ourselves, guys. And perhaps for you, that's a foothold. And you're trying to fight that battle, but you're leaving that foothold. I remember when I was in college, that year I met Rory. It was a good year. But while I was in college, I, I recognized that my computer was being, becoming a problem. That my computer that I was doing my homework and essays and papers and all my stuff for school on, it was a point of temptation for me in my dorm room. It was, I was stumbling and looking at stuff I shouldn't occasionally, and I was like, you know what? This isn't worth it. So one weekend, I traveled back home to Bandon. I brought my computer with me. I told my mom and dad, I said, I can't have this at college. 
The enemy is getting a, a foothold into my life through this sin. I'm stumbling. I can't handle this. So I left it home. Was that inconvenient? Oh boy. Trying to type up papers and do homework on the computer. We did have computers back then when I was in college, believe it or not. But I had to go to the library or the, you know, the university buildings to, you know, check out a computer and do my stuff there. Really inconvenient. Guys, it's always going to be inconvenient to obtain victory against the enemy. He's not going to allow it to be convenient for you. He's going to make it difficult. There's going to be sacrifices that you have to make. David did not make those sacrifices in this case. And he stumbled. And he fell. So don't give the enemy a foothold by taking it easy, by allowing things in your life that the enemy can hang on to. I think each one of us know right now what those areas are in our life, where the enemy can get into our lives. And what are the consequences of letting Satan have a foothold in our life? Well, for David, again, he lost a child. He had a man's blood on his conscience. God even told David, David, you're, you're a man of blood. You're not going to be able to build my house. David wasn't allowed to build the temple for God. God said, your son Solomon's going to do it instead of you, David. He lost a lot that God could have done in and through him because of that sin. Not only that, but Bible commentators say that David didn't write psalms for about a year after that sin. What does that tell us? It cost him his relationship with God. He talks about this in Psalm 51. We all know that psalm. I didn't look it up, but I believe it's Psalm 32. As well, maybe someone can confirm. Psalm 32, where David talks about when he was hiding his sin. He was just miserable. His bones were like wasting away. He wasn't uttering praise to God during that season. And guys, when we allow the enemy to have a foothold in our lives, to cause us to sin in our flesh, it robs us of being able to worship God like we ought to. And you know what I'm talking about? You've been through seasons where there's something you've hung on to, like David, he sinned, but he didn't confess that sin. He harbored it. He hid it from others. He didn't confess it. And it wasn't until a brother, Nathan the prophet, confronted David that finally David confessed. And after that, he began to praise God again. He was cleansed. The gist of that, the point of that, we got to bring our sin to the light. we got to expose our sin to one another. Maybe that's going to mean for you going home after this weekend and exposing something to your wife and saying, Honey, here it is. Maybe you younger people, you need to expose it to your parents and say, Mom, Dad, here's something that I've been struggling with. I need help. The enemy wants to get us to try and fight those battles alone. But just like David, it took another brother getting involved to expose that sin, to bring it forth so that he could be cleansed and begin to praise God and be used by God once again in his life. So David, he was lifted up in pride, let his guard down, took the easy route after that victory. The other man I want to talk about is King Saul. And for this, we're going to, we're going to start actually in Deuteronomy before we talk about Saul, you guys know that Saul was the first king over Israel, which, by the way, was never God's intent from the beginning. Remember what God told the people of Israel? He said, I will be your king. 
I will rule over you, the Lord said. But what did the people of Israel say? They said, no, we want a king. We want a man to rule over us like all of the other nations, like all the other people. We want to be like everyone else. Isn't that the temptation, guys, in this world? Temptation is, I just want to fit in. I just want to be like everyone else. I just want to be able to do what everyone else does. When everyone else is watching this show, everyone else is going to see that movie. All these other guys are looking at that stuff. You know, everyone else gets to go to the lake on, on Sundays. And, and it's difficult. There's sacrifices. God's calling us to be separated from this world. We're called out of this world. The term sanctified, holy. God says, be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. That word means other than. God is other than. Amen. Amen. He, there's no one like him. And he calls you and me to be other than. To be like no one else around you. To be the one that stands up and stands out and presses in and fights the fight and rids themselves of any sin that entangles or obstructs or binds us up. That's what God has called us to do. But the people of Israel, oh, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a man to rule over us. And so they anointed who? Saul. To be the king, the first king of Israel. We might call him the people's choice. <laughs> he was the people's choice, not God's choice. The people said, oh, Saul, he was, you know, he was like a foot above everyone else. I don't want to compare Chris to, to Saul. But Chris, man, I saw Chris yesterday. And I was like, wow, like just a man. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking to you, Chris, back there. You can hear me. I mean, isn't he just like an impressive stature? Am I the only? No, no homo here. Okay? <laughs> Man, right there, and, and I and I and I would assume like that was like Saul. Saul was like head and shoulders above the rest. He was just like a studly dude. People were like that's a king we can follow. That's that's the type of guy we want. We want to rule over us. And we know man chooses based on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. We know later God anointed David to be the king. He wasn't perfect, no. He wasn't necessarily impressive in his stature and his appearance, but God saw his heart and said, here's a man, although he's not perfect, I can use this guy. And I want to encourage you, because some of you guys are sitting here going, I've screwed up. Man, I've, I've messed up. I've failed. I've not been perfect. So therefore, God can't use me. And wrong. Wouldn't the enemy just love for you to believe that? This is part of that spiritual warfare, the, the thoughts he puts in your mind. Oh, you screwed up back here. You have that issue, so therefore God can't use you. So you might as well just sit on the sidelines and watch other people fight the battle. Wouldn't that be just like Satan? To want to remove you from the battlefield so that you're not a threat, so you're not taking territory. We need to put away that voice of the enemy. We need to silence him by hearing God's word, by hearing God's truth, so Saul, before we get to him, though, there in chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, the children of Israel, I already mentioned them how they fought against these people known as the Amalekites. The Amalekites. And they oppressed and came against the children of Israel when they were brought up out of Egypt by Moses, by the hand of the Lord. 
And what Amalek would do, Moses reminds the people of here in Deuteronomy. Read verse 17 with me. Moses writes to the people, says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear. When you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about, verse 19, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Moses reminds the people, don't forget about Amalek. Don't forget about our enemy who came after us when we were being delivered. We were delivered from Egypt. God was leading us to the promised land, but we had this enemy that was picking off the people at the rear of the congregation. The stragglers, the ones who were kind of taking it easy. Not charging ahead, but taking it easy towards the back. You would think in battle, the safest place to be would be where? At the back. But it's not so. Why? Because the Lord is at the front leading. The safest place you and I can be is up front, close to the Lord. Why? Because when you're up front, you really don't forget about things like holding your shield up, making sure you got your armor on. Amen? If you're up on the front lines, you're like, I, I'm ready, I'm vigilant. Why? Because the enemy's right there. You don't forget about the battle. When you're hanging back, you know, uh, you know, I made the church once this, this, this month, you know, I'll make it again next month, and oh, I know I've been reading my Bible, but you become unaware of the battle you're in. And when you do that, your armor starts dropping up, and you're like, I don't see the enemy. I don't see him anywhere. And all the while, he comes up behind like Amalek and picks off the people at the rear and attacks from the rear, guys. And if you recall, it's been spoken of a lot. You've probably heard it said, but the armor of God, there's no protection for the back. You've got the breastplate, you've got the helmet, you've got the shield, the sword. It's all to be used on the offense, to be pressing forward. There's no armor to protect us because we're not supposed to run away, you see. But also, when you're at the rear of the, the pack, when you're falling behind, when you're taking it easy, the enemy will come up behind and try and take us out. So Moses says, don't forget about Amalek, what they did to us. We can't forget, guys, about how the enemy has attacked us in our lives and let our guard down. We have to remember, what does he say? Blot out the memory of Amalek. What does that mean? Wipe out these people entirely. And later, God will call them to do just that. In fact, 1 Samuel 15, flip there with me. First Samuel chapter 15, Saul has been anointed to be the king. And just like Moses told the children of Israel, hey, remember Amalek, remember what they did, your enemy, don't, don't spare them, you need to blot out these people, they're wicked, and they're going to come after you again, so blot them out, remove them from even the memory of them, he says. In First Samuel 15, Saul is called to go up to war against Amalek, against this nation, against this people. And it says in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 15, Then Samuel the prophet said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. 
Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. In our modern era, some of us go, wow, yikes, that's harsh. How, uh, how does the justice of God, the love of God, you know, blend with this? God is telling them to wipe out the entire people group of Amalek. And might I submit that God knows better than we do? Mm -hmm. We have to be careful at not judging God and putting Him to the test and saying, I don't know if God is just and loving in this. He is more loving and just than we ever could be or understand. Amen? Amen. He is. And I believe, personally, that whenever God announced or commanded the annihilation of people like this, and later, as He'll continue to, as He told Joshua, to wipe out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, it's because they were so far gone, they were so wicked, I believe they were beyond redemption. God knew that. You know, we think about like Sodom and Gomorrah, a wicked city. Amen? Yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah was wicked. But remember when Abraham pleaded with God, said, God, would you spare it for 50 righteous people? If there's 50 people in there that could be saved, that, that would love you, God, would you spare it? God says, yeah. Well, how about 40? Yeah. 30? Yeah, God says. 20? 10? He gets down to 10. God says, Yes. I would spare for ten righteous people. Notice that Abraham stopped asking before God stopped answering. That what, what I mean by that is, I believe if Abraham had said, well, how about for five people? I still believe God would have said, yes, I'll spare it for five people. Abraham thought ten people, surely there's ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Were there? There wasn't. That just goes to remind us, don't be afraid to ask. Don't be, be afraid to ask for big things. Don't be afraid to ask for big deliverance for your children mm. when they're running far from God. Oh God, uh, could you do this for my child? If you would only do that, ask big, ask beyond, go further than what you even think God might do. Why? Because He's greater than you can imagine. He'll do exceedingly above and beyond all we can ask or even imagine to think of. God is faithful and He's more loving than we could ever understand. And so here, I believe with the Amalekites, God knew these people need to be wiped out. It's just going to be generation of generation after generation of enemies that are going to hurt my people, but also children that are going to be raised in an idolatrous, sinful... Uh, eventually, those, those people are going to be condemned. So God knew this is an act of mercy. To actually wipe out the Amalekites. And so Samuel the prophet speaks to Saul and says, Hey, God wants us to utterly destroy Amalek. Meaning they wouldn't exist after this. Remember, even the memory of Amalek would be removed. So, off the face of the earth. This is the command, the instruction that was given to Saul. But then Saul summoned the people and numbered, numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah 
Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. They were spared. Saul says, Get out of here. Go before we destroy everyone. So Saul defeated the Amalekites, verse 7, from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. Great. Saul was obedient. He destroyed all the Amalekites, right? He, he did what God said to do. He completely wiped out any foothold that the enemy could have had among Amalek. He, he did as the Lord said, right? Verse 8 says, He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Ah, <laughs> oh, she ugly, kill her. Oh, that, that lamb's all messed up, kill them. Ooh, that looks nice. I think we'll spare that. Do you know what I'm saying? This is what it's saying. This is what they did, Saul and all the people. They didn't obey what God called them to do and utterly destroyed the enemy. And in fact, he spared alive, it says, not just any Amalekite, but Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. He left the king. The, the most important the most powerful, the most influential, and arguably the most dangerous one to keep alive. Why did Saul keep Agag alive? We see in verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a mountain for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel, said, uh, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, verse 13, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. What a liar. Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says, Oh, Samuel, blessed are you of the Lord. I've done what God asked me to do. I did what God said. But Samuel said, verse 14, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? <laughs> and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. Or whatever oxen do. Remember, I'm not a cowboy. Saul said... They have brought them from the Amalekites. Notice what Saul says. They. They, <laughs> they brought them from the... They who? The people. What a leader Saul was. <laughs> a true leader, a true man, takes responsibility for his actions, for his decisions. Guys, when you have disobeyed the Lord and you get caught, we need to own it. We need to say, I did this. We need to confess. We need to come clean. Not blame. How many guys struggle or stumble into sin or lust, and then their wife catches them, and they turn to their wife and say, well, if you had done more for me, 
if you had satisfied my needs more often, then I wouldn't have had to go do this thing. That's not a man of God. A man of God doesn't blame other people for their own mistakes and decisions and sins. He owns them. So he blames the people. It says, they brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Notice another thing Saul's doing. When he talks of the Lord, he says what? The Lord, your God, Samuel. I believe this reveals to us Saul's lack of relationship with God personally. Again, he wasn't the king that God had chosen to rule over his people. Some indicators here. He's not walking in obedience. He's blaming other people for his mistakes. And he doesn't even reference God as his own Lord. He says, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. What does this mean for us? Well, the Lord has called us, guys, to be holy. He's called us to remove sin from our lives. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of yeast will cause the whole lump of dough to rise. So it is with sin in the church. And in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul writes that, there was, a, there was immorality, open immorality being lived out in the church and nobody in the church was dealing with it. They were just like, oh, it's okay, it's whatever. This is what people do nowadays. And we're not going to confront it with the Word of God. We're just going to kind of ignore that it's happening. And we're, just, we're supposed to love people, right? So we're just going to love them. We're not going to confront their sin at all. And Paul says, no, that sin is going to spread throughout the body. Mm-hmm. He says, remove the leaven. And if there's somebody that's in sin, it needs to be dealt with, it needs to be confronted in love. In love, but it needs to be dealt with, not ignored. God has called us guys as men to remove sin from our lives. Not most of the sin, but all of the sin. But how many times, like me, have you made excuses and said, well, I mean, really, how practical is that, God? It's not like I can be perfect. So, I mean, I removed most of the things. I utterly destroyed almost everything that I could, but we make an excuse for that one, perhaps, foothold that you allowed to remain in your life. But as we're going to see, that one foothold will come back to get you, will come back to bite you. So then Samuel said to Saul, verse 16, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Saul's like, I did obey. And I brought the king back alive. Well, then he didn't obey, Saul. He's making excuses for allowing this very big part of Amalek to remain. And then again in verse 21, he goes on to tell Samuel, blame the people. He says, but the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, listen to this, 
Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Do you catch that? We're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about demonic influence in our lives. Rebellion is as the sin of divination, guys. When we rebel against the Lord and don't remove sin from our lives, we make excuses for it. And we say, I, I mean, I gave up alcoholism. I gave up math. I gave up gambling. I gave up maybe all these big open sins. I don't go down the strip club anymore. I don't do that thing. I mean, so, you know, it's not, I just have this one little thing that I, you know, I can't seem to, I can't seem to be set free from as we hang on to it. Can't, I can't seem to let go of this thing. Can't, you know, I've asked God to take it from me. You know, go ahead, Lord, take it from me. We're tugging, we're hanging on to that thing. I pry it from my hand, Lord. But I found the Lord's not going to pry something from your hand. He's given us choice. He's given us free will. He's not going to make us surrender to Him. That's not surrender at all, is it? Surrender is of a free will. Surrender is... is of your own volition, laying down and giving up and letting go. Saul said, oh, we were going to sacrifice, the people were going to sacrifice these animals that we spared. It was for the Lord that we didn't listen to the Lord. How dumb does that sound? <laughs> oh, oh, Lord, it was for you that I that I kept this thing. Oh, Lord, it's for you that I cheated on my taxes so that I could use that money to give to, to missions. It was for you, Lord. The Lord says, I... I I don't care about your sacrifices. I care about obedience. Amen. And maybe that's a maybe that's a word for someone here today, guys. That there's something in your life you've allowed to remain, and uh, it's going to come back to haunt you. It's going to come back to get you. And I just need to wrap up this thought, and then I'll close up so we can have a break before the next session. But later in First Samuel chapter thirty-one, verse four, you can jot it down. But there Saul is at the end of his life. He's in battle. And he's struck with a mortal wound. And he tells his servant and says to his servant, Would you kill me? Run me through with the sword so that it's not said that I was killed by the enemy. You know, go ahead. It was an act of honor. You know, like like uh, Japanese samurais or something, right? Like you don't want the enemy to take your life so you fall on your own sword, kamikaze style. like And... So Saul's doing that. He's, so he falls on his sword, so to speak. But then we find out as we read 2 Samuel chapter 1, that he actually didn't die at his own hand. In 1 Samuel 31, his servant was like, I can't do that, Saul, I can't kill you. You're my king, you're my master. Like, I couldn't take your life. So Saul falls on his spear, falls on his sword. And then we read the next chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 1. <laughs> And it says here that Saul actually didn't die by falling on his own sword. It came about, verse 1, after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. So David came and cleaned up the mess that Saul left undone. They were still fighting even at the end of Saul's life here. Fighting against Amalek, you see. And it says, on the third day, behold, a man came out 
of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground, prostrated himself. Then David said to him, from where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, Here I am. He said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. This young man that was in the camp of Israel, they were fighting against the Amalekites. This guy escaped from the battle. David's assuming he's one of their men. But lo and behold, he was actually one of the enemy. He's one of the Amalekites. The people that God had told Saul, wipe out the Amalekites utterly, completely, destroy them, don't leave a foothold. But Saul did, he left King Agag alive. Somehow, some way, the Amalekites were not utterly destroyed that day. You say, but King Agag was killed that day, wasn't he? You guys remember the story? It's epic. I didn't read, read it there in first, uh, in first Samuel 15. But shortly thereafter, when Samuel confronted Saul about his disobedience, he said, bring out Agag. And Samuel took his sword and hacked him into pieces in front of everybody. So what are you doing leaving this guy alive and just start hacking him, killing him in front of everybody? So that's you have an image of what a prophet of God looks like. You know, this holy guy that's like swinging a censer pan and like has scrolls in his hands. No, the prophets of the Old Testament were serious. They were no joke. He hacked up Agag in pieces. And yet somehow the Amalekite people were able to continue and procreate and multiply to where they were a problem. They were a force to be reckoned with that Israel was still battling against years and decades later. And ended up being the demise, the downfall of Saul. He was killed by who? An Amalekite. That is the thing that he allowed to remain in disobedience. When God said, remove it all. He said, well, I'm just going to leave Agak. That became the source of the, the man who would one day take his life. You guys, for us, the Lord may be calling you to rid your life of something. To confess sin to remove and reveal and bring to the light. And the thing is, is, if we don't obey the Lord completely and come clean and get all of the sin out, that thing will come back and get us later down the road. It doesn't just go away. Well, how did Agag, I mean, how did they go on? He was killed and all the other people were killed and said, well, this is, maybe many Bible scholars teaching on this say, he must have, Agag must have had access to procreate. The rest of the people were killed. They were utterly destroyed. So when Saul spared Agag, he wasn't chained up in some prison somewhere, chained up to a tree. It's as if after the battle, Saul and Agag are like battle buddies. 
Hey, you're a king. I'm a king. Hey, I'm going to treat you like a king. Perhaps here's some of the women that you can please yourself with. That's an assumption there, but that Agai was able to give offspring shortly thereafter before Samuel packed him into pieces. And guys, the, the point is, is our flesh, that foothold we give through not ridding our, our flesh of sin in our lives, guys, the enemy can get a foothold. You know what that is for you. I know what that is for me. But the answer is to remove that foothold. And how we do that is by shining light into that space. Remember, foothold means like a place where, where one can dwell, where one can inhabit. Foothold, somewhere you can just hang out there. And Satan is hanging out there in your life until what? You remove the foothold. Then he will fall. He won't be able to hang on. And guys, God wants victory in our lives more than anything else. But as long as we allow those footholds to remain, Satan's going to keep multiplying, keep spreading that leaven throughout our lives, guys. And that infection will continue. I think this is why fasting is so critical, so important. I'm so glad that other churches are joining in around the state. So glad our church this is only our third year doing prayer and fasting at Riverview. And it has been transformative for our church. It's been transformative for me personally. It's been transformative for our leadership. Um, it has been such a huge thing. Fasting from the flesh is like, it's a full-on attack against our flesh. It's telling our flesh, like Josh said earlier, you don't get to tell me what to do. We're telling our flesh. We're telling that sin nature in us. I'm not giving you, I'm not satisfying the appetites of my body and what my flesh wants me to satisfy. I'm, fasting is like training in order to fight our flesh, guys. Have you, have you experienced that? Like when you come off of prayer and fasting, you have a newfound strength to be able to fight your flesh and say no to sin and temptation. But this has to be part of the structure, I think, in our lives, guys. Without structure... Um, it's very difficult. Just like the enemy can't hold on without footholds, we need footholds for, for the Lord. We need footholds for the Spirit. You know, Rory said that bold statement last night and said, you know, I humbly submit to you, I think he said something like that, that just as much as the Holy Spirit can fill us, that evil and the, the enemy can also inhabit and fill us to a similar degree, and I believe I believe that's true. Just like we give Satan a foothold in our lives, guys, we can give footholds for the Spirit of God. And what are those footholds? They're places where He can dwell. It's men's mustard. That's a foothold for what? For the Spirit. It's Sunday morning. Hebrews ten twenty five says, "Don't forsake gathering together." As the day draws near, some people are not meeting together anymore. They got their eyes on other things, but keep gathering together. That's a foothold that you create a space for the Spirit to have control in your life and influence. Because give more and more footholds for the Spirit in any foothold. If I seem tiny, oh, it's just Agag, it's just one man. Well, that one man turned into an army and ended up taking you out, Saul. And in your life, that little thing you spared and say, well, God, I, I utterly destroyed most of it. I'm just going to leave this one little thing. You know, it's just, it's just the king. It's just the, the biggest...
problem for me, but it's just one little thing, it'll come back and bite you. It'll come back and kill you. So creating structure, guys, in your life. Setting up things. Discipline is good. You know, that's one of the the recurring and, and uh, common characteristics of almost any and all successful people, whether you're talking about CEOs, billionaires, um, you, you know, uh, successful ministers, pastors, one of the common characteristics is that they are disciplined individuals. Almost without exception, anyone who's been highly successful has a lot of discipline in their life. They wake up early, that's one area. What does the Lord calls to do? Get up early. Give me the first fruits. In the morning, seek me. You know, seek me early. Uh, I heard someone say this week, he's the bright and morning star. Well, I spend time with Jesus at night. I'm more of a night owl. He's not the night star. He's not the bright night star. He's the bright morning star. Like he calls us to get up early and that's a foothold you can give to the spirit in your life, guys. That structure is so needed. Getting up early. Discipline. Um, and this isn't legalism, guys. This is just the way it works. Are you with me? This isn't like, you do these things or else you're not a godly man. It's like, you, you do these things or else you're not going to be able to be a godly man. I can't be a godly man on my own. I've got to lean on him every day in order to do that and ensure continuation of that. I've got to create structure. And I've got to have discipline. I've got to have brothers. I've got to have accountability. And i got to make space for those things by removing other things. What things is the Lord calling you to remove? What footholds in your life right now would God say, you need to get rid of that thing? Lord, I just pray, God, as we close this session, get ready for another one in 15 minutes or so, Lord. I just I pray, God, that you would be stirring that in our hearts, Lord, in our souls, just bringing conviction by your Holy Spirit, Lord. That, Lord, we would recognize those footholds of the enemy and those footholds of the Spirit, God. And we'd rip off those footholds of the enemy, Lord. We would not allow it to remain. We'd not be lifted up in pride. Those attacks that come after victory, Lord, like David, by taking it easy. Or like Saul, allowing things to remain that we should have eradicated and exterminated, Lord. I pray even today there'd be confession, there'd be accountability. There'd be guys saying, I need to bring this dark sin to the light. Maybe you haven't told anybody about that. And reject the excuse. Well, I've told God about it, so I don't need to tell anybody else. Wrong. What does James say in chapter 5? If anyone has sin, let him confess his sin one to another, that he may be healed. Yeah, but God's already forgiven me. I told God about it. He's forgiven me. Yes, but if you are still sick because of that sin, you're still struggling with that sin, could it be perhaps because you have not confessed it to one another? to another brother, to your spouse. And because of that, there's sickness that's been allowed. There's a foothold that's been allowed to remain because you're keeping that thing in the shadow. You're not being honest with your brother. You're not being honest with your parents. You're not being honest with your spouse. Bring it to the light. And watch and see the victory of the Lord. And continue to walk in the light as he is in the light. Lord, I just pray and ask you to do that in us, in this group, in this time, Lord. And we just love you and thank you for your word.
in your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Rory, well, we got like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, take a 15 minute or yep. stretch and get some coffee and all that. And we'll come back for a shorter session right before lunch. Yeah, if you want to stick around, you have any questions, I'll be here, so feel free.
better watch your step.
still one of these. No, I, I saw I was, I was counting for it. Turn off my phone.